So tonight I'd like to wrap up a little the connections between the last three factors of the path and to some degree just how they lead ultimately to equanimity or upeka. Just want to refresh your minds on some things and I may not have spoken about some of these things so much in this last half of the retreat, but the kind of the most important things I've discovered along the way and been focusing on for the last 10 or 15 years of uh, communicating this to people, that the process of the path, the Eightfold Path, is counterintuitive. It's not the way we normally function about our our views of our past, or how we see ourselves, is radically different in, in some ways. And one of them is that you're you are just putting in conditioning factors. Because of the the Buddhism has a very long view of what existence is, and that we come into this this life with a huge structure of potentials that are not just uh, features of this life. Buddhism doesn't try to, the Dhamma doesn't try to investigate the details of the beginnings of, of things in terms of biography, your autobiography. Because it has a huge, vast past to it that you, you, most people can't access through memory. And there's a lot of parts of this life you'll never access through memory. You're just, when you try to analyze why you are who you are now by going back into the past and looking at various things, that's a, that's a, a major sport these days. And, um, it's not part of the, the Buddhist process. Buddhism has very effective techniques to undo what we think are the results of traumatic experiences or difficult experiences, problematic experiences, shaping experiences. They had all those things at the time and people got past them in a remarkable way not just managed to cope with them, but actually got free of them. And they, that was, the process was never through any kind of personal analysis or investigation of, their, of the events of their life. So it's important to understand that you can take a chance with that technique, but it means you're just setting aside um, analysis or close inspection of how certain events shaped who you are, certain events in your childhood or in your teens or shaped who you are. You can set that aside as it it sometimes makes very interesting stories, but um, uh, it makes good literature as well, but it may not, it may impede you in making quick progress on the path. 
So this is a commitment to setting that aside and just going straight for more or less dismissal of the emotion late, the charged emotions of the past. That's how they're diminished and eventually go to cessation. So that's the technique, and the technique is quite brusque. It's very brief description. There's a few suttas on on uh, how to dismiss the hindrances. And the first one is simply a prevention. Don't try to prevent them from arising to begin with. So these are the negative emotions. Try to prevent them from arising to begin with. Not honoring them, not uh, giving them more value than they have. They don't they intrinsically don't have value. Not only do they not have value, but they are negative value. So we're attempting to prevent it from occurring before it starts. And then if it starts, the the easiest thing is simply the brush off. You just walk past it. You dismiss it. If that doesn't work, then you attempt to turn your mind to another uplifting and more wholesome topic. And by that means, that your mind can't do two things at once, so it, the other one disappears as, as you swing your mind to a wholesome topic which uplifts up your emotions. Uh, failing that, then a heightened awareness of the problematic nature of dwelling on these negative emotions because they, they self-reinforce. The more you live with them, the stronger they get, the more potent they get. So you should be concerned for your well-being, how they will affect your future. And that motivates you to further effort at dismissing them or disabling them. It gives you more motivation, strong motivation to overcome these things. Anxiety, fear, anger, worry, agitation, depression, paralytic doubt. All these things are strongly conducive to sorrow and uh, suffering in your life. So you're strongly motivated not to do that. A lot of people don't know they're allowed to dismiss these things. They think that's their rightful punishment for whatever they've done in the past. We're not into guilt. So the sooner one lets go of it, the better. If you can let go of it, then you don't have to persist with it. The next uh, level is that sometimes it's really sticky and you have to devise a series of strategies to finally get over it. And that that's the sort of the gradual removal of it. So sometimes it means changing locations, changing your activities, um, just changing your bodily experience. You can go and have a shower and 
etc. I'll read a book or talk to a per- another person. Uh, interruption, 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 until you finally get it to a manageable level where you can finally let go. And then a last but not least is a, an active kind of willed suppression. And uh, that is uh, the, the sort of last technique that you employ because it's, uh, it's not, there are more refined and easier ways to do it, but if you have to, you, ha- you have to uh, suppress it in a very determined and willful way. And that kind of talk and that kind of methodology seems to go against the grain in the general attitude to the mind and the emotional structure in our present society where you're encouraged to investigate and explore and embrace and all of these things. But it's really not the teachings of the Buddha. And you you really have to make a choice here because there are two radically different structures and techniques and this one is not to explore it not to accept it not to embrace it so this is it's up to you to make the choice I don't find many examples of people in general in society who engage in those kind of things that really come out the other side in a much lighter and freer way I don't see great success with those conventional methods. I see sometimes people understand themselves a little bit better. When they say understand themselves, they don't really understand themselves. They understand the story and the tangles that they describe as themselves. But it's usually not a very dramatically healthy condition that you emerge from. Where the aim of the Dhamma is radical and much more extreme version of health, mental health. And we do see examples of people all through history, not just few, but many, who come out the other side in a very light and enlightened manner, free from a lot of the the uh, normal dysfunctions of the of the mind so this is the this is what these three factors are about and it's uh, as quickly as one can do it the the more you have trust in that technique and the more you employ it and the more you know you have your attention is sharp enough to spot these things and apply those simple methods, the faster the progress will be. It doesn't take that long to decondition something of this pile of stuff. More or less, uh, the pile of stuff which you when you which you peer into in your meditation, especially in a retreat, you just think this is a mountain of stuff. Like it just goes on. Where is the top of this stuff? I mean, it's just amazing how. Where does it begin or end? How can I, how am I supposed to deconstruct that? Well, that stuff is piled up by nature. It's a kind of a gradual thing. Just all it takes over a long period of time is a few centimeters a year, as you see with 
geological formations. They can be very slow and they pile up. But if you harness some machinery, <laughs> you can deconstruct it in a much, much faster way than it than it grew. And we, from a Buddhist point of view, it's grown over multiple lifetimes. <laughs> but by gradual sort of natural process. So when you harness these skills and intentional application of them, you can really undo mountains of of stuff that built up gradually over time through lack of skill, lack of understanding. So that mountain is avijja, lack of knowledge. So it's misinformation, disinformation, and lack of information. That's what we would call this avijja, this ignorance, lack of knowledge, which is the source of the problems. And so the deconstruction of this is the application of, very determined application of reducing the function of the five hindrances, because that is what's not only increasing gradually the level of it, but has... um, produced that mountain of stuff. By weakening it, the mountain actually sort of becomes less solid and manageable. It's like a big pile of snow as spring comes. It starts to melt from within and then it's easily removable eventually. So this is the technique. You may arrive uh, temporarily on the doorsteps of samadhi, and samadhi is the heart unburdened. That's all it is. You know, when we use the word uh, concentration, it just misleads you, but it's really not concentration at all. It's the heart unburdened of the hindrances. Mindfulness has led you to that condition, and it's something you really don't ever want to leave. And that's good. By the way, you know, there's lots of misdirection about being wary of that feeling that you want to remain there forever, that you want to sustain your samadhi and you want to remain in your samadhi, etc. You, yes, you want to remain free, the heart to be free of its uh, these all these irritants and unnecessary burdens. Of course, you do, and the Buddha is all for it. So the warnings about getting attached to that kind of stuff are wrong warnings. They're not the way the Buddha talked about this. It's very important that it's a positive experience. It's not to be feared. It's not a concern. You will be attached to it. You can't not be attached to it. And it's not a problematic attachment because it continues to lead further towards freedom and eventually to irreversible freedom. So these are some of the mis- general misunderstandings sometimes about these, this process. Mindfulness is, has a number of functions, and one of them is to observe things, but it's not the only function. Function is to also to call in other forces to, re- to redo and remove negative things. If you manage to get into, go through the doorway of samadhi to the unburdened heart, then mindfulness is still functioning in there. And its function there is to keep you in there, to enjoy it 
and to be fully aware of when you're drifting, when you're beginning to drift out of it. So mindfulness functions initially as a kind of bouncer, remover of troublemakers. Finally, when the place is free of that, it becomes the host to these wholesome experiences, the rising of energy and joy and clarity and the um, lovely factors uh, which are comprise of awakening, which lead to awakening. And it's to host them and encourage them and ask them if they'll stay a little longer. And that's so it's now changed its function. It's very necessary in both of those situations. It's the thing that spots and rids you of these negative things, and it's the thing that encourages and nurtures positive elements. And it's not merely a neutral bystander that watches things. It's active, it's very engaged in your... You've harnessed it as a an incredibly important factor for assisting you in the path, and it's more than happy to help you, because it has a certain amount of intelligence to it. It's not just an automatic process. So another word that goes along with sati, mindfulness, hyphenated sampajanya, and that sampajanya is, is an element of awareness, a kind of panoramic awareness. And it has obviously some sort of consciousness and intelligence involved because it, it, it makes selections, it, it recognizes things, it identifies things. So it's not just a passive observer. You're not just a passive observer of the contents of the mind, but you're a, a canny and well-informed observer, a sentry with very specific instructions about what must be kept out and what should be welcomed in. So that's the description of mindfulness. So this leads to this samadhi, the last factor of the path. And it's where the beauty um, really begins. Non-sensual beauty. Uh, You might have, I'm sure you all have experienced beautiful parts of your life. There are beautiful moments, there are beautiful experiences. But this is a of a different order, it's a different kind of beauty, and it's not based on the conventional interactions with the world around you that you experience through your sight and sound and even your memory or your plans. It's something that is uh, difficult to explain because it's not based on any of those things. And that's why it's, I guess, considered a mystical. It's, it's a mystery. It's, it's not irrational at all. It's, it's very rational. It's very sensible. But it's a bit mysterious why one would feel so lighthearted and well when, if somebody asks you, did you see something that made you this way? No. Did you hear it? Was it music or something? No. Ah, you smelled apple pie. No. 
You tasted apple pie. No. I shouldn't be talking about apple pie at this time of the night in a... In a um, but, and it's not a memory. Are you experiencing a memory of a beautiful moment? No. Oh, you have plans. You're going to, you're going to Hawaii next year. No, it's not that. None of those things. A mysterious thing. It's just the absence of the of these burdens, the problematic burdens that haunt the mind, and weigh on the heart. And so it's this absence is a strange thing. You feel as light, you feel light as a feather. There are gradations of a bodily lightness, a kind of heart, lightness of the heart, but actually kind of a sense of lightness of the body as well. Even to the extent where you almost you feel that you're, you're going to float away. These are the kind of descriptions in the commentaries of various degrees of the effect of joy, the spiritual joy, and this energy that's created can give you the feeling of, you know, a, a, a virtual reality of, of levitation or lightness of, of total being. I'm sure you, perhaps some of you had, had dream, flying dreams or floating dreams and so forth. It's a very curious experience, very pleasant experience be able to float around and so forth. This is the mind. Uh, I think the cause of those is that the mind is uh, unburdened. You're, you're experiencing in your dreams or you know, when you're asleep that you're untroubled for a while and it, you, it, it, the mind it translates that into the feeling of actually lifting off the ground. So this is the... Um, this simple process. Now, this supports the arrival also of the mind at equanimity, especially if you touch, even touch into the first stage of samadhi. Afterwards, there's a residual experience. You feel untroubled or whatever it was that was irritating you and you found it to be Issues in the world, problems in life, they don't seem to be problems anymore. You just think, what, what was the problem? That's equanimity. Equanimity is starting to form, and it's the post-samadhi type of experience. You're, the worry part of your mind, the irritated part of your mind has been tranquilized. And uh, you're walking around with well-being and, and maybe even enhanced clarity and sensitivity, but you can't seem to remember what the problem was. So that's a form of equanimity based on samadhi, but very mild samadhi. It's not the deep stillness of you know the fourth jhana, the deep deepest levels of samadhi. It's what you already begin to experience this in in just touching on that. After you get your mind in this beautiful state of the unburdened state, the unharassed state, then uh, you can get up and walk around. It may last for, it may permeate your, your ordinary waking experience, moving about, doing things, etc., talking to people. It, it persists. 
It's not in a profound way where you can't speak, although that can happen too. (laughs) It's possible to, if you get very continuous samadhi for a long period of time, maybe you're doing solitary retreat and so forth, and then you come out of that and you have interactions with people and they might speak to you and you might be surprised. You have trouble actually responding. The words don't... <laughs> Your language part of the brain is sort of shut down. Also, the more analytical side is kind of shutting down as well. But in the lighter, more mild ways, you can still, you still engage in conversation, but you might be a little less verbal, a little more simple in your speech and your response. It's just kind of this kind of a... It's like after a massage or something like that, you just kind of not really don't really want to talk too much. <laughs> so you can see this is uh, affects the mind in a very profound ways. It's possible to find areas of your mind you may not have encountered before, but it's really worth the exploration because it's not like it's only for a very tiny fraction of the population. It really is available for intelligent humans. You're all intelligent enough to come to a retreat. You're all intelligent enough to give ear to the to this Dhamma and these talks and so forth. There's no reason why you can't experience that. There are no no good reasons for that. If I was in a maximum security prison, I might not be saying this. That the audience there may really it may be not possible in this life, but we're not in a maximum security prison here, so I would say that there's all kinds of potential with uh, people. Anybody who can come and sit still for a week, is uh, it's already quite admirable. It's uh, not quite normal, actually. You're not quite normal. <laughs> and so uh, there's hope for you. <laughs> Yeah, so you should push that not-quite-normal a little farther and become even less normal. More, a little bit more super-normal. Just be curious about this. Investigative. Curiosity is beautiful in this case. You really should be curious. And a bit of an adventurer about this. Yeah, see where this goes. Taking some chances, even, you know. So, if you have familiar techniques that you developed over time that have about exploring and embracing and holding sort of emotional structures that are familiar to you in your life that you've been working on or working with, and so this is different advice, and it's kind of putting it all aside and, and just sweeping it away <laughs> and going for something, a, a positive alternative. And just see how it goes. Just be curious about that. If you haven't tried that, give it a shot. And give it a shot not just for an hour, but try it for the next year. <laughs> you have to give it a good shot to see if it works. And I guarantee I will give you your money back if it doesn't work.
And if it, if uh, you manage to get your foot in the door of samadhi, and then the job is just to see how far you can go. And that uh, has to do with you know your circumstances in life. It's like how many opportunities you have to go on retreat, how much free time do you have, how much can you control the environment and the your social the demands on you your and your what more or less your karmic dilemmas you life hands you karmic dilemmas where you you just don't have the time and you, the, things are invading your sp- space and your practice and so forth so that in that case it's very difficult to, to really explore deeper into the samadhi but if you have the opportunity you know, explore. For most of you, it'd be very safe because you understand that your sanity is based in in some commitment to virtue to begin with. You know, you you will stabilize your sense of sanity and well, mental health and well, by a couple of things, just by being a generous person and being a moral person, an ethical person, and that you are you enjoy. The being a person walking through this world who is not a threat to everybody else and everything else. It's not a threat. <laughs> that itself is mental well-being. That, that's mental health. That's why in the maximum security prison, it didn't work out, did it? <laughs> you were a threat to everything. <laughs> You're not a threat. This is the gift you keep giving to everybody around you, is that you're harmless. No one fears you. That's mental health. (laughs) It it spreads to it, allows others to be okay. In, uh, In these maximum security places, quite often guards get beat up and prisoners get beat up and all kinds of people get beat up. But psychologists and like, priests and stuff almost never get beat up. <laughs> it's because they're not really there to threaten anybody. And they're just kind of there. And that, that these people know that there's, there's, no, there's no threat from this person. Well, all this violence happens because there's a, there is a threat from guards and other prisoners. And so that produces violence. But when a person who's not a threat to anybody walks in there, it's, the violence towards them is quite, is very rare so that is the basis of mental health and that's the basis of uh, of the possibility of samadhi that's your reward for being a person who is has no intention of harming anybody and you're you will you get a special reward for that you get a door opens the possibility of a door opens that is not going to open for those who are a threat to others who are trying to get everybody else's stuff you know all for my, me, you know. This is the door slams shut. There, you can't. You, you're you're condemned to a little island of unsatisfactory conditions. When you do not think that way, when you think in the opposite direction of goodwill, and how can I can I share something with you? Uh, join us for dinner, you know, whatever. <laughs> this op- this is where the, how that door swings open. That's the hinges for that door of exceptional emotional well-being. That's how it happens. 
with a little added practice. But that, that you, you cannot even come close to it, no matter how long you sit there, if those factors have not been developed first. But if they're developed, then the higher aspects of the path are the door should swing open quite without too much trouble. And even we shall arrive at uh, equanimity. And so that's, I planned it to end the retreat on the word equanimity. (laughs) 